Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is side B of a prostitution mixtape where we curate a collection of songs about the world's oldest profession. We are back and we are going to finish up our discussion on prostitution. And uh, there, it, like anything else, uh, this is having these themes is a great way to pull in different popular music, a lot of which we haven't heard in a long time, some of which we may never have heard, and pull it together under one umbrella. And just to make a mixtape, yes, thematically, lyrically, it's thematic, but I just love how you wouldn't find a lot of these artists together on a compilation if oh. you didn't include them on a prostitution mixtape. Never, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's the joy of the of what we do. I mean, a lot of the a lot of our themes are very tight. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're decade specific, right? Genre specific. But when we go with a theme like this, yeah, we're all over the place. So. I'm sorry. I'm, I have, That's okay. We're still have a cough. I, I <laughs> have a cough drop in my mouth. And we're still getting over stuff. <clears throat> All right. Well, I I think I start, don't I? You do. Okay. Well, let's see here. Yeah. Well, I mentioned last week that I was going to um, give the boys a chance here, and so I'm going to start with a, my first male prostitution song. I think of um, Dan Aykroyd from SNL. <laughs> um, what was the name? Fred Garvin, male prostitute. Yep. <laughs> And this is a song called He's a Whore by Cheap Trick. Boy, I love this song. This is just so much fun. From 1977 from their debut album, Cheap Trick.
we have to go back to the very beginning of, of Cheap Trick's career um, for this one. Uh, eccentric guitarist Rick Nielsen, eccentric is the only way I can describe him, penned the song around the title, which he thought was much more interesting than a song called She's a Whore. And on its face value, it's, it's about a man who sleeps with ugly but rich women. However, Nielsen said that the emphasis of the song is not solely focused on sex. If you pay attention, it's about anyone who's willing to do anything simply for money. And in an interesting twist, the final refrain changes to, I'm a whore, uh, reinforcing the idea that we all do things that we don't want to do for money, even if it's just clocking into a dead-end job to pay for the weekend. Yeah, I, I just love this track. It, it shows how the band started with this straightforward, punk-inspired you know these these punk inspired rock songs they're definitely a rock band um but of the time i mean this we're talking 77 so the punk move, movement's having an influence in a lot of pop music and rock music and just that rhythmic interplay between tom peterson on bass and bunny carlos on drums is just a lot of fun um it just drives the song forward and i'm sure you have caught this like most cheap trick songs there is always a Beatle homage. Cheap Trick is just, they're not quite as obvious as Yellow in their inspiration of the Beatles. Right. But it can be very, very obvious. And in this song, um, the refrain, Anytime at All, that echoes, um, to me, is a clear um, reference to Anytime at All by the Fab Four. So just a little little note there. The song is, like I said, so much fun. Another one for rolling the window down on a hot summer evening and just belting the lyrics down the hallway, or the hallway, the highway. Um, not, not super serious, not like some of those songs that we've chosen that are really trying to explore the humanity of people who have chosen sex work as a profession, either by choice or to survive. Um, this one, just kind of a different uh, different look on the, on the topic. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great tune. Um, yeah, cheap trick. Talk about a victim of the '80s production. Yeah, I was just thinking that the, the flame. Yeah, <laughs> the '70s cheap trick is is so great, and, and and there are so many good songs from the '80s by cheap trick. Um, there really are, but a lot of it kind of fell victim to what we talked about last time about '80s production. And I don't know if we've ever talked about. Did we ever talk about the flame on the show? Yeah, you you used it for. Um, okay, why would I use that? Some? Well, I think it was maybe it was the. The skating uh, couple. Skates. Oh yeah, might have been, might have been. Um, but um, but really, the record contract was about to drop. Um, Two trick um, in I think it was eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight, whatever, late eighties, and they said, you know, you need to have a hit, um, and 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 we're, you're not writing a hit. So they gave him a choice. In fact, they gave the record company gave Cheap Trick a choice of a song and Chicago, who was also on the same label, and Walk Away was the one song, and the other was The Flame. And they gave Cheap Trick first pick. So they chose The Flame, and Chicago chose, look, is it Look Away? Look yeah, Away, yeah, Baby is. Look Away. And um, it just, that's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. It sounds like a professional songwriter wrote a pop song, gave it to a rock band. The rock band did their best with it. And hey, it went to number one. These people are all, you know, gainfully um, in economic security the rest of their lives because of the song. So I don't right. want to knock the fact. But just, just kind of, to me, kind of a low point for the band. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it did go to number one, which is just proof positive that, you know, a good songwriter, you know, writing for commercial sure. radio, yeah. they they know what they're doing, you know. It, but it's, yeah, it, it is very painful when you have a band like Cheap Trick knowing their roots to see where they 
landed, you know, at that particular, uh, at that moment. Um, yeah, it's look away. I, neither song is is better or worse than well, the other. It, They're equally bad. The song's so. production sounds like a hair metal band production of a song. Yeah, yeah. Given to a not a hair metal band, you know, but a, but a rock with, band with some alternative leanings. And yeah, it just didn't. The songwriter was trying to hit that power ballad, that hairband power ballad kind of thing. Yeah, it just um, didn't work with you. No, I mean, it, you know, it's. I'd say it's more akin to Nelson. Yeah, yeah. Do <laughs> you remember Nelson? Oh man, uh, love and affection. Oh, you do remember? Who was Nelson. inspired by Julie or uh, Cindy Crawford? If I remember correctly, yeah, he was obsessed. One of the Nelson boys was obsessed yeah. with Cindy Crawford. What was the other one? The rain after the rain, uh, something like. Why that. do I remember so much I, about you, Nelson? I I will be honest. You remember more than I do. <laughs> I don't know. You why. remember a hell of a lot more than I do. I never owned a Nelson recording. I uh, I promise you that the majority of what I know, they're Ricky Nelson's kids. Um, yeah. yeah. And of course, there was also Tracy, who was the actress. But um, it was the same time as Millie Vanilli. They're all these twins. Oh, Millie Vanilli. Were they twins? Millie Vanilli are twins? No, no. Millie Vanilli okay. were. Um, no, they were. I don't know. I just, they were just two supermodels. They pulled off the street. <laughs> you know. In fact, um, I don't know. Today, you know, given the TikTok craze and everything, I just um, lip syncing doesn't seem to be quite so detrimental to a person's career anymore. Right. Um, so, but nonetheless, uh, no, um, no, I think the standard, especially for for live television appearances, the standard, of course, would be to lip sync because you oh, can yeah. technically control things. But I really respect the artists that go out without a net and they perform oh, like on Saturday Night Live. They absolutely. perform live. Yeah. Um, because you can tell. Yeah. Um, well, and if you're confident, if, if first of all, if the song is yours and, you know, if you're confident and you, you love what you do, then yeah bring it yep. you know own yep. it but um anyway all right well yeah that's we, we digress that, that might be a good song to either start the first or second side i don't know something to think about hmm. um all right so i promised that this week you would know my songs that will be true after this one <laughs> because this one is still okay. uh, a bit obscure but i had to include it i just i love mostly i love the piano what they do on the keys on this particular song it just uh, gives me chills. My next tune, I could have used it last on our last episode, Christmas Card from a Hooker in mm. Minneapolis by Tom Waits. Charlie, I'm pregnant Living on 9th Street Above a dirty bookstore of Euclid Avenue. I stopped taking dope. I quit drinking whiskey. My old man plays the trombone, works out at the track. He says that he loves me. Though it's not his baby He says that I'd raise him up Like he was on some He gave me a ring That was worn by his mother It takes me out dancing 
Tom Waits, I mean, first of all, this guy is so entrenched in the underworld of society that even his Christmas tales forgo Jingle Bells and Rudolph and venture into the world of hookers and estranged dope fiends, okay? Um, however, he does it with such a sure devotion to the, to the sort of absurd poetic realism that the darker side of civility offers up that he, he nevertheless captures Christmas from someone's point of view. Uh, when it comes to his 1978 album, Blue Valentine, his stripped-back tales seem to slur and stagger their way through the speaker. And it is a credit to Bones uh, Howe's wistful, minimal production that the song seems to be recorded a million miles away from the studio, despite having a, crypt, uh, a crisp sound. Um, of all these dive-bar anthems, Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis is one of the best songs that Waits has ever written. I'll stand by that. It is a track that displays... <coughs> excuse me. It's a track that displays his true singularity as a songwriter and a tale that harks back to the bluesmen of the past. Um, ran through a filter of kaleidoscope postmodernism, really. Um, the, uh, it seems, the song, it seems to be fitting when it comes to the absurdity Waits was trying to capture here, that he would often explain the story behind Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis as follows. You ready for this? Mm -hmm. On stage, when he would introduce it, he would often say, I was in Minneapolis. It was 200 degrees below zero. I know you think I'm bullshitting. No, I swear to God, I was wearing just a bra and a slip and a kind of dead squirrel around my neck. He was, <laughs> he was colder than I was. The police cars would go by and they'd wave, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. Anyway, I got caught in the middle of a pimp war between two kids in chinchilla coats. They couldn't have been more than 13 years old. They're throwing knives and forks and spoons out into the street. It was deep. So I grabbed a ladle, and Dinah Washington was singing Our Day Will Come, and I knew that was it. <laughs> that is how he would introduce this song on stage. I mean, you want to talk about a William S. Burroughs-esque spiel. Well, there, that's, that's you know? Tom Waits. It is. It is completely. Um, so then, you know, you had the, the twinkling of the piano keys. He would simply start playing the song after that introduction, and the song is just, it's beautiful, but it's haunting. It's both. Uh, whether or not it was a cutlery-based juvenile gang war <laughs> amid the coldest temperatures recorded on the planet Earth that spawned it, uh, both the result and the peculiar introduction are a reflection of the way that Waits approaches his work as a songwriter. Um, while the story behind Waits' Christmas classic might be muddied by his own wild imagination, the tale it contains is far easier to follow. In the song... Waits narrates a first-person letter from a prostitute to an ex-boyfriend. She writes of how she has fallen pregnant, uh, cleaned herself up, and is in a safe and loving relationship. But then slowly, details of how she still misses Charlie and thinks of him every time she drives by a gas station because of all the grease that slicked back his hair, you know, the song begins to real, reveal that all is not as meet the, meets the eye. Um... And by the final verse, the story is revealed to be a fallacy, as the prostitute from Minneapolis confesses that her story was a mere fable and that she is, in fact, incarcerated and in need of help. She signs her letter, I'll be eligible for parole come Valentine's Day, and perhaps the weirdest sexual proposition in music. <laughs> uh, so it, it, it's a measure of Waits' mastery that amid this grisly tale of the sadly disenfranchised that there's something inexplic in, inexplicably festive that soars 
on the message that Christmas might not always be merry, but it offers up a sweet moment of reflection nevertheless, even if you're in jail or a fork-flinging, fur-coated delinquent. So, as an aside, the song's third verse mentions uh, the, 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 you know, the titular hooker. She, she mentions that she still has the little Anthony and the Imperials record that Charlie gave her. Throughout the late 70s, Waits would often play Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis as a medley with Going Out of My Head, which was the signature song of Little Anthony and the Imperials. Um, Waits is just such a character, you know? You never know what you're going to get from from him. It, it's He is arguably one of the most talented writers in music, but he is so off the wall. You know, Tom Waits is, is what music looks like uh, when a guy who's a, who's a musical genius songwriter who is not afraid to explore every single fun corner of his imagination, yes, no matter how dark it might might be, um, with, I wish I had this, um, the superpower of just not giving a crap what anybody thinks. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, he, 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 in a way, is a lot like Lou Reed. We talked about Lou Reed and how Lou Reed is like a poet of New York. And I want to say Tom Waits is also um, in, in that category. But even, <laughs> he's even more willing to go in places that Lou Reed has never gone before. Right. And a lot of people don't realize that Tom Waits started out as, as a jazz artist. Oh, um, absolutely. The Heart of Saturday Night as an album, um, that right there is just a driving, nighttime driving album. Um, one of my favorite records of all time. And it's just a really, it just, again, the fact that these artists can take a scene and paint them for you through music and through lyrics to the point where you feel like you're downtown in some seedy portion, uh, some seedy block, walking into a bar at 2 a.m. And you just can smell, you can smell the smells. You can, you know, see the protagonist trying to see through all the cigarette smoke to the side oh, yeah. of the bar. It's just all there. And so he does something like Heart of Saturday Night, which is very, very, very traditional jazz, um, although Tom Waits' version. And then you have something like the Rain Dogs in the 80s, which is such a classic record. Oh, but one of my favorite. Wow. Yeah. You know? And then everything, there's so much other stuff. Um, you know, he's, Springsteen has covered him um, with... Um, Jersey Girl, yeah. um, it, Rod Stewart um, with uh, Downbound Train. Oh, yeah. Um, there's just so many. Um, what's, there, there are a couple other ones, too, that are just classic songs that Tom Waits originally you know, wrote right. that most people haven't heard that other pop artists have turned into hits. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, he's, he's so eclectic and so, I don't know, I... I really admire Waits because I wish that I had that active imagination, mm-hmm. you know, because... And the voice. Oh, the voice is wonderful. So, someone, re- re- someone I, I don't, I'm paraphrasing, but someone said his voice is like as if you took a piece of leather, soaked it in bourbon, set it on fire. <laughs> That's Tom Waits' voice. Yeah. And then scraped it over rocks. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, so, um, yeah, it's perfect. Perfect description. Yeah. No, I I have thought about using this on our Christmas episodes in the past, but I, I'm glad I didn't because I think it's a much better fit here. He's in my performers, of uh, list of performers that I'd like to see live. I would too. Some little some little dive somewhere. Yeah. It would just be incredible. I would very much like to see him. 
All right. Well, my next one is a song um, by one of the uncles, Billy Joel. And this came from his, well, it depends on how you count it. Um, most people would say it's a sophomore effort because it was his second major album release. Technically, it's his third record if you count the independent um, Cold Spring Harbor release on, on, on Family Productions. Um, now, you don't much care for this record. Um, and Street Life Serenade, by the way, is the name of the yeah, record. I, there are, okay, let me, let me get it out there. I do enjoy Roberta, although I do think that the melody to me is what makes this song. Um, because it, you're seeing glimpses, some brilliant glimpses in Roberta of what's to come with Turnstiles. Roberta, you say you know me But I see only what you're paid to show It's a pretty straightforward song about being in love with a prostitute. In this case, one named Roberta. Uh, we had a friend whose mother's name was Naberta, so we always would sing this. <laughs> or Naberta. Um, many listeners, fans, and critics um, consider this record to be his weakest and most uneven. We've talked about that. Um, but to me, these these songs say something. Um, they might be half-baked, but, 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 but they're real. Like, he is, as a songwriter, beginning to open his eyes. I mean, he did, obviously, in Piano Men as well. Um, speaking of Piano Man, do you know Dolly Parton did a version of Traveling Prayer? Yeah, oh yeah. Did we ever talk about that? And um, In fact... I, I came across that somewhere. I'm like, this, I wonder if it's the same song. And it is. It is. Yeah, it's the same song. It's great with Dolly. Yeah. This is not so good. I don't know why you want to start your major label career with Traveling Prayer. Anyway, going back, um, with Roberta, it sung with so much desperation, so much angst, so much lust. It's clearly coming from a young songwriter and a young protagonist. <clears throat> Joel did once say that the song is autobiographical. Yeah. Um, in his younger years, he felt like he was in love with a woman who worked as a prostitute. He even tried to talk her into leaving her profession and going away with him, but she refused, saying that she liked the independence that the job afforded. Yeah. Well, he actually, you know, Roberta is one, he does not play Roberta. <laughs> no. But he did, um, he did discuss the song and play most of it at the New Yorker Festival in 2015 at the request of some diehard mm. fans. And yeah, he, he of course said that, yeah, just as you said, it's a true story. Um, but he also joked that not only was she independent, not only did, you know, that did she enjoy what she did, actually, uh, but he said she was making more money than me at the time, so she laughed at the idea of running <laughs> away with me, you know? Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, I... I you know, as I was preparing for our our episode, I have not listened to Street Life Serenade. Oh my god! 
I can't remember. It's been like 30 plus years since I have listened to the I haven't album. listened to it top to bottom, but I, I will listen right. to his catalog on repeat sometimes. Yeah, because I, I saw the, on yeah, cause I saw that you had Roberta, and Roberta it made my, my, my list initially, but I, it, again, it's just I'm not a huge fan of the album. But I went back and I listened to the album, and it it is uneven, but there's so much... There's so many little pieces there. You can see the seeds of you, what's Yeah, I mean, you can see where it's rooted. And it, it's not as bad as, as I make it out to be. And Roberta, in fact, I was actually pleasantly surprised. I Hearing it for the first time in a long, long time, I really enjoy it. When, when, the, when the choral part comes mm-hmm. in, you know, the ah, uh, yeah. and, and uh, with just the piano, it's, it's a very beautiful piece. Um but it's the one thing I'll say about Roberta is it's uh, it has a lot less to do with love and a lot more with frustration. Mm-hmm. The song begins and ends with frustration, right. and it's it's you know he's just uh, you said it perfectly, just the angst and the yeah. I mean, I, all these songs, um, Great Suburban Showdown. These are all young, written by a man in his young twenties. Yeah, the angry young man, right? Um, which would appear in the next album. Um, looking at the world um, with probably a lot of confidence, too much confidence. It's you know we were all that way. You oh, know? Yeah. And every young, at least young man, I think in the in the in their twenties thinks they know everything. Yeah. Well, the pro- the problem with street life is that um, you know given the given the success of Piano Man, and I say that, and it it was successful. And it was not a top twenty hit by any stretch, but given the the success that it had on, especially the AOR formatted radio stations, mm-hmm. his label, Family Records, which was not friendly to him in the first place, they basically were pushing, pushing, pushing him to very quickly come out with a second album, mm-hmm. and he didn't have material for it. He had a lot of ideas, but he had no, you know, he didn't have twelve cuts. Right, right. So the reason it's half baked is because it was. Half baked, you right. know. It, it just wasn't. Well, that would have been CBS at the time. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, it would have yeah. been CBS. That's and, true. But see, back then, that's when um, labels would give you three or four albums to get your feet set. Yeah. Um, in today's market, well, today's different because of the indie component. But um, I would venture to say, like in the in the nineties, eighties, nineties, two thousands, if you didn't have a hit on your first record, you're you're done. Oh, yeah. They're going to cut you loose. Whereas Bruce Springsteen, what you know, they gave him three records to finally have a hit. Um, Billy Joel, even though he had a couple singles, it wasn't until his you know, fourth record, um, n- least major release record, that he had a major hit. So yeah, they had more patience back then with artists, let them develop. Well, I think, too, they were willing to gamble on an artist or a band back then based on talent. Mm-hmm. And that's something that today talent means so little. In the music yeah. industry. Talent and, and audience. I mean, Springsteen clearly had a, had a following. Right. So they were willing to give him more yeah. time. I think the thing with Springsteen was trying to get him to, to kind of replicate that live sound in the studio. And it took a while because he was such a perfectionist in the studio. Right. Well, he was also trying to write operatic. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. and you look at those first two albums and it's just... Trying to be Tom Waits. He re- yeah, he really was. <laughs> you know, the songs, they meander... Or Bob Dylan. Even more yeah, and they meander in and out of... It's hard to even follow plot points to some right, of the songs, right. which I love. Yeah, yeah. Know? But it's, yeah. Um, it, it but again, he wanted to... It's funny because we've gotten off on a tangent here, but 
he wrote Born to Run, the song, because he wanted the perfect AM, you know, pop song that just roar out of the speakers on AM, you know. And it, it, it's a very complex song. It's very much like a Brian Wilson, Wall of Sound type, type um, recording. Um, but he also, in some ways, wanted to be more progressive, right? He, he, you got that same record. You have Jungle Land, which is not written for radio. No. Um, so it's just cool to see how these artists that would become the giants um, in the music industry during their time got started. Yeah. yeah, and and there's just something I've always enjoyed about this. Again, it's another one of the songs that 30 years ago when I decided, hey, I should make a mixtape about prostitution. Um, this is one of the ones that came to mind right away. Yeah, and you know, it it was there for me too. I mean, everyone knows everyone who knows me knows, you know, my my obsessive love of of the piano man. But street life is just I would not have I would not have brought it to the table. But I'm glad you did. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's a great addition. It's another deep cut. Like I said, lots of deep cuts in this episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, so hopefully our, our audience will, uh, you know, give all these Prostitution's songs. Prostitution's not great for, for radio. Yeah, no, it's not. Friendly airplay. In, unless it is by Donna Summer. Ah, good transition. Yeah, my next pick was a number one hit in 1979. It, it, it peaked at number one. It is Bad Girls. Bad girls are prostitutes, and Summer got the idea when she was working at the offices of her label, Casablanca Records, in L.A. She sent her secretary on an errand, which took her down Sunset Boulevard, a street known for their illicit activity. The secretary, who was black, told Summer that the police harassed her, assuming she was a working girl. Hmm. This raised the ire of, of Summer, but also provided inspiration for the song, which came together when she started ad-libbing lyrics in the studio. Summer wrote this song in 77 when she was collaborating with a vocal group called Brooklyn Dreams. Um, and when she played the, the demo track of the song for the lead of Casablanca Records, Neil Bogart, 
He thought it was too rock for her and suggested that the song would be more suitable for LaBelle or for Cher. It didn't go over well with Summer since she wanted to record the song herself, but she shelved it. So two years later in 1979, an engineer named Steve Smith was looking through some tapes trying to find some blank space to record when he came across the demo of this song. And he reminded Summer of the song. She had forgotten all about it. And he also told producer Giorgio Moroder about it. Moroder and Pete Bellot, uh, who were the team that produced Love to Love You Baby, produced a new version of Bad Girls that became the hit two years after the song was written. Um, this was Summer's biggest hit. It was number one in the U.S. for five weeks, helping her to earn the title of the Queen of Disco. And the famous toot-toot and beep-beep vocal interjections were something Donna Summer came up with in the studio after the track was finished. Uh, she felt the song sounded a bit empty in parts, so she made up some car sounds to simulate the horns calling for the attention of the prostitutes. Um, it, it, this one is, this was the first one that immediately came to mind when you suggested yeah, oh yeah, the title. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was kind of funny because, as I said um you know, on our previous, on, on side A, so many of the songs that we have here are very atmospheric. They're very moody. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, they're very seedy, uh, understandably so. So I was having such a hard time, <laughs> and I'm still a little worried about this. Where does disco fit in musically? You know, oh, with these other songs. With, with these other songs to segue in and out. It's going to be interesting to see how we sequence. But yeah, no, Bad Girls, it, it was a number one. In fact, uh, it's one of two disco tunes that I'm bringing to the table. Um, they both were number one hits. Uh, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. All right. So, cool. Your turn. I pulled another one from the Ramones. Um, this one, again, about male prostitution. So I included it. It's uh, off their debut album, 1976, Ramones. And I'm talking about 53rd and 3rd. This record completely changed the trajectory of rock in the late 70s. We already talked about how, you know, it's based on a lot of the bubblegum music of the 50s and 60s, but with a little distortion and, and very sped up. And the bassist, D.D. Dee Dee Ramon, who's quite a character. I don't know if, if our listeners know much about D.D. Ramon, but mm. uh, I'll, I'll tell a quick story to, to kind of get <laughs> put it in perspective. When he was uh, in the early 80s, he put out a rap album. Did he really? <laughs> it's just a, <laughs> go, to, go to YouTube. Holy hell! And check out Didi Ramon rapping. I'll just say that. How did I not know that? <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. Um, 
And the thing about, you know, when the Ramones went over to England, um, the Sex Pistols, I think it was maybe it was Johnny Rotten that might have said that they were just everyone was really scared of these New Yorkers that came in black leather. Like they thought they were going to just get beat up <laughs> by this American band. Which, if you know, the Ramones is oh. so funny because, yeah, that's not them at all. The wind could blow them over. But yeah. if there's any one member that really kind of did live a rough life on the streets at a certain point in his life, it was Dee Dee. You know, I've I've heard, I I know I've read it somewhere. There are rumors that Dee Dee actually liked the characters of this song. Was yes, no, no. That's that's probably true. Yeah, um, it was probably true. Um, it is. Dee Dee said it was autobiographical, which is a bit concerning. Um, not because Dee Dee might have spent time as a quote rent boy or a chicken hawk, which was the, the slang term for a, a young male prostitute uh, at the time in, in Midtown Manhattan. But what's disturbing is that the song in the song, the protagonist kills the John with a razor to prove that he's not homosexual. Yeah. And hopefully it's not that autobiographical. <laughs> but that part of the song is sung by Dee Dee. Oh, you yeah. notice that. It is. Um, everything else is sung by Joey, but then he comes in on that little bridge and talks about killing this guy with a razor. So who knows? Now, conservative guitarist Johnny Ramone. Again, Ramone's... If just. Just read a short biography because it's crazy. The soap opera, Johnny taking Joey's girlfriend, Johnny being a right-wing conservative, and Joey being a left-wing liberal. And I don't know how they stayed together. They, well, and they fought the whole time. Yeah, they didn't like each other, but they, yeah, they stuck together. Interesting story. Um, but conservative guitarist Johnny Rowland would not admit to knowing that the song was about Dee Dee turning tricks. To the extent of how autobiographical it is, of course, it's never been con- confirmed, um, but... He did say that he did work. Uh, Didi's admitted to working as a as a young male prostitute at one point. Um, yeah, this just it's another one of my favorites. It's a great little melody. It's just like the Ramones, you know, about two minute song, nice and tight. Their live sets were about twenty five minutes. You couldn't stick a piece of paper between the songs. They were, you know, they just go from one song to the next. Oh yeah, every song. Great stuff. Every song would begin with a count for the next. Yep. Yeah, one, two, three, four. All right. All right, well, this is my second disco tune. Also hit number one, this time in 1974 from the album Nightbirds. The song is Lady Marmalade by LaBelle. chose to go with this version and not the star-studded version I, from Moulin Rouge? I did, yeah, okay. I did. Um, 
I love both versions. I really do. I, I like the version by Christina and Pink and Lil' Kim. I, I, I love that version from Moulin Rouge. But... I in fact I, I kind of waited I went back and forth which version do I use and then I I finally just deferred we are Gen X mixtape yeah so that makes sense yeah. that's why I went with LaBelle um, the song is about prostitutes in the Big Easy and the French Quarter is near the city's red light district and the titular uh, character she famously propositions her clientele in French the chorus of voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir is French for Do You Want to Sleep With Me Tonight? Hmm. I'll have to remember that. When, <laughs> might come in handy. Um, <laughs> when LaPelle performed the song on television, broadcast standards of the day prohibited them from singing the chorus as written. So they had to change it to Voulez-vous danser avec moi ce soir? Which means Do You Want to Dance With Me? Um, Bob Crew wrote this song with Kenny Nolan. Crew is a producer who worked on many songs in the 60s, including the the hits by the Four Seasons. Lady Marmalade was not typical of Crew's work, but it was the biggest and last hit that he worked on. It became the biggest hit for the songwriting production team of Crew and Nolan, and strangely, it replaced another one of their songs, My Eyes Adored You by Frankie Valli, at number one in America when uh, when Lady Marmalade peaked at the top of the chart. It knocked uh, another one of their songs out. Um, the song was originally recorded by the disco group The Eleventh Hour, which was made up of studio musicians and featured Kenny Nolan's vocals. Their version was released in the summer of 74 and it went nowhere. LaBelle recorded the song at the suggestion of their producer, Alan Toussaint, who recorded it with the group uh, in New Orleans at his Sea Saint Studios. Their version was released in October of 74. It climbed to number one in the U.S., on March 29th of the following year. Um, LaBelle turned the song into an outrageous party anthem, which went along with their glamorous rock and sexy persona, earning them a huge following, especially in the gay community. Uh, to anyone paying attention, the song was highly suggestive, and it did ruffle some feathers, uh, partly because it seemed to glamorize prostitution. Uh, in a 1986 interview with NME, Patti LaBelle explained, the song was taboo. I mean, why sing about a hooker? But then she also said, why not? I had a good friend who was a hooker, and she died. She never took the mic out of my mouth, and I never took the mattress from under her. She was a friend doing her thing. It'd be like discriminating because you're white and I'm black, or you're gay, or someone's straight. I don't believe in separating people. If your job is a hooker, more power to you, is what she said. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, this is the only hit credited to LaBelle. Uh, Patti LaBelle, the lead singer of the trio, recorded in the 60s as Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, and in the 80s as a solo artist. Um, but Lady Marmalade was the only uh, hit that she had uh, fronting the trio. And as you said, in 2001, Missy Elliott produced a new version with Christina Aguilera, Lil' Kim, Maya, and Pink uh, that was used in the, the film Moulin Rouge. Uh, this remake was wildly successful, connecting with a new audience and winning the 2001 Grammy for Best Pop Collaboration with Vocals. It also got the approval of Patti LaBelle, who said that she loved it. Um, Maya, I guess, said that she used to sing the original version around the house when she was a kid. She never knew what the French part meant, and her mom, who spoke French, never told her. <laughs> um, the Missy Elliott version won Video of the Year at the 2001 MTV Video Music Awards. 
Um, the video featured the singers dressed as prostitutes, which is how they performed it on the show. Um, here's where it gets kind of interesting. There's some pretty neat trivia here, okay? The female British pop group All Saints, which I've never heard of, apparently they covered Lady Marmalade in 98. And their version got very little attention in America, but it went to number one in the UK. It was one of five chart toppers for the group from 97 to 2000. In the UK, both the All Saints and Missy Elliott cover versions went to number one. And this was the first time a song topped the UK charts twice, but didn't in its original version. Hmm. In 2005, this happened again when Steve Brookstein hit the top of the UK charts with Against All Odds. Four years after Westlife, featuring Mariah Carey, did the same, but Phil Collins only reached number two in the UK. But Lady Marmalade is the only song to top both the UK and the US charts twice. Hmm. In the UK by All Saints and Missy Elliott, and in the US by LaBelle and Missy Elliott. Uh, when the Missy Elliott version hit number one, Lil' Kim became the first female rap artist to appear on a number one single. So there's a lot of trivia yeah, yeah, yeah. involved here. Um, but yeah, I, this was another one I knew I was going to use. And again, I know I can at least, if all else fails, segue from one disco tune to the next. Still don't know where they fall in with Lou Reed and Tom Waits and, you know, Elton. It's going to be an interesting sequence when we put this in together. In my next one. And your next one. <laughs> yeah. My next one is called Your Latest Trick by Dire Straits from their huge album, Brothers in Arms, 1985. Brothers in Arms really was one of the biggest records of the mid-80s. Oh, it was. It was huge. Uh, with its like Money for Nothing and Walk of Life, uh, as well as their war epic title track. But I, I call it one of the hidden gems um, because in America it wasn't really well known. Uh, it was the, actually the fifth single off the record. I didn't know if it was even released. I had a version on tape. Somebody must have, must have recorded off of um, someone that had the LP. And I loved the record. It, it was... Of course, the singles were fun, but there was a lot of, again, talking about Tom Waits, a lot of darkness, um, which, you know, you can find in Dire Straits, you know. Um, 
again, Mark Knopfler's the writer very much like Waits and Lou Reed, who's not afraid to paint a picture of some of the uglier parts of town, um, where some of the people that society doesn't seem to value as much as others end up to, uh, congregating. And um, this would be an example of that. Um, it's, it's a moody jazz piece. For some reason, slow saxophone jazz lent itself well to <laughs> CD joints at night. Always has. And again, if you were going to compile a, a mixtape, one of these days we should just do a late night driving song mixtape because we keep talking about it. Um, we'd have to repeat a lot, though, because we've used a lot of these songs. Um, but this one goes right. I mean, you could start within the air tonight and go right into this track. Um, and I already mentioned any track off Tom Waits is Hard as Saturday Night. You can almost visualize the seedy characters looking in the shadows before the lyrics even begin. Um, the sultry saxophone, again, the saxophone sounds appropriate here. It doesn't sound like an 80s add-on. Just kind of filling the dark alleys. Uh, but despite the grim nature of the lyrics, Mark Knopfler's vocal performance suggests an air of comfort in this world, which I find is interesting, right? You can talk about seedy places and, and, and be frightened of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are places, you know, there are ways to sing about things where you are not, um, you can either be sympathetic or very comfortable. And um, Mark Knopfler's protagonist here sounds very comfortable in this world, a world that may be harsh, but also provides a home for those, as I mentioned, rejected from the mainstream of society. The song also kind of plays around with the word trick. Yeah. It's kind of a double meaning, uh, both in its original denotation as well as its more colloquial usage, referring to the act of a prostitute. Um, Although it's not as straightforward as some of the songs on my list in terms of prostitution, um, this one centers around the failed relationship with a lady of the night. Um, again, a little more poetic in the way that he pulls it out. Um, I don't think a lot of, everyone may not pick up on that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but, but apparently that was the intent, was the protagonist kind of lamenting this failed relationship with a prostitute. Yeah, no, I, <clears throat> I love this song. Um, I guess um, I, I read somewhere a while ago um, this was originally meant to be a much faster yes. jazzier tempo. It was. Jazzier tempo. It was, yeah. um, but I guess it was the label that, that or the manager who talked them down into make recording it as a slower, more, mm-hmm. more stately bossa nova. Good producer. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've always found interesting about this is that the CD version of Brothers in Arms and the vinyl version have two different intros to this song. There's one of an extended intro of the CD? The CD has um, the trumpet. You know why the, it is? Why? It's probably because they couldn't fit everything onto the vinyl. Oh. Because yeah. remember, when CDs held, what they hold now? That's forget, true. Like 70, 80 minutes of music. Yeah. And that was a lot for a record. You really had to have, you know, pull yeah. some tricks technically to get, that's why they had, obviously double hours were so popular. Yeah, the CD allowed artists to really expand on their track listings. So that may have been why. Okay. Yeah, because I, I, um, I never owned this on vinyl. I had it on CD. Um, and yeah, it begins with, with trumpet, and then that saxophone follows the trumpet. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I heard a version not too long ago um, on Sirius XM, and there was no trumpet. And I thought... Hmm. Why not? Maybe that was the single version. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was the single. Probably or, the single version. But, but it's a long song. But then I, I looked it up, and yeah, in fact, it's there's no trumpet on the vinyl, so it just it kind of hmm. I don't know. I was really kind of intrigued yeah. by that. So I think it's much better with the trumpet. So I mean, it's probably my favorite song on the entire. Well, Brothers in Arms 
is my favorite song on the album, but this would be my second favorite song. Yeah, I'd go Brothers in Arms too for my favorite. But but talk um, about an album that is timeless. That doesn't it. That does not sound like an '80s record. No. Even Money for Nothing, Walk of Life, don't sound like '80s songs because they were rooted in so much of a more of a traditional. Like Walk of Life is just a kind of a. How do you well, even describe it? Walk of Life is the closest to sounding. Yeah, but but, dated, even, but it's but it's not. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Um, yeah, I don't know. How would you describe? I, I don't it's know. It's just a great rock record that had several very hit singles. Yeah, and a band that that's what was so great about the eighties. I mean, who would who would expect you, Lewis, in the news? These these well, late thirty guys in their late thirties, all of a sudden, you mean have these massive records? Yeah. Um, What's you said this was released as a single? What number single was it? Fifth, on the album? Fifth, fifth, yeah. So, this was another one of those albums that, yeah, if you liked the songs, right. you were better off just purchasing purchasing the, yep. the record. Yeah, I didn't realize they had that many singles come mm-hmm. off of it, though. And again, um, you know, that could have been British versus American singles, it could have been different, true. Yeah, that's depending true. on where they were releasing. All right, folks, we don't bring it much, but today I'm going to include a country tune. It's time to bring some country to the table. What? There's a country song about prostitution? There is, yes. (laughs) My next pick is the 1990 track Fancy by Reba McIntyre. Well, I remember it all very well. Looking back, it was the summer I turned 18. We lived in a one-room run-down shack on the outskirts of New Orleans. Didn't have money for food or rent To say the least, we were hard-pressed Then Mama spent every last penny We had to buy me a dancing dress Well, Mama washed and combed and curled my hair And she painted my eyes and lips Then I stepped into a satin dancing dress I had a split from the side, clean up to my hip It was red velvet trimming and it fit me good and Standing back from the looking glass There stood a woman where a half-grown kid had stood the song was originally written and recorded by Bobby Gentry, who was one of the first female artists to compose and produce her own material. Gentry rose to international fame in 1967 with her Southern Gothic narrative, Ode to Billy Joel. Billy Joe. Well, I was say, Let me Billy try Joe? that again. Ode to Billy Joe. Uh, so uh, that track uh, spent four weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Oh, wait, about Billy Joe? I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm strong. Anyway. <laughs> it was, Bad joke. It, you're getting there, yeah. And, and it was third in the Billboard year-end chart of 67, earning Gentry um, Grammy Awards for Best New Artist and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance in 68. April 1970 saw the release of Fancy. It was Gentry's sixth album in three years. Um, And it contained only covers except for the artist's self-penned title track. Now, most of the album was recorded at Fame Records recording studios in uh, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, with producer Rick Hall. Fancy was released as the album's first single, and it became Gentry's biggest hit since Ode to Billy Joe. Of the song, Gentry herself said, Fancy is my strongest statement for women's lib. If you really listen to it, she said, I agree wholeheartedly with what that movement and all the serious issues that it stands for are about. Equality, equal pay, daycare centers, and abortion rights. So, the song. Fancy tells the story of a woman crippled by extreme poverty 
and abandoned by her husband, who then sends her 18-year-old daughter, whose name is Fancy, to work as a prostitute. Fancy proves very successful at her work, but she is haunted by the memory of her sad and desperate mother. Reba had wanted to record this song since 1984, but her producer at the time, Jimmy Bowen, was against it because he believed the song was too closely associated with Gentry. In 1990, McIntyre changed producers to Tony Brown. The singer and Brown had almost finished the recording of Rumor Has It when the producer asked her if there were any other songs that she wanted on the album. And McIntyre told him about her desire to cover Fancy, so the two set about creating what would become one of Reba McIntyre's signature hits. Uh, Gentry's original reached number 26 on the country chart and number 31 on the Hot 100, McIntyre's version surpassed the original on the country tally, reaching number 8 in 1991. Um, CMT ranked McIntyre's version of Fancy at number 27 on its list of the 100 Greatest Country Songs in 2003. Like Gentry before her, McIntyre explained to American songwriter that the song's predominant theme of women's liberation um, was very important to her. She said, even though she was a prostitute, she and her mother realized this is how you're going to be able to survive in this world. You get your toehold and then go on and be bigger and better and also take care of yourself and help others. So both Bobby Gendry, who wrote the song, and McIntyre, who covered it, strongly believed that Fancy is a song about female empowerment and women's lib. Um, I I like both versions. Um, it was my wife who kind of pushed McIntyre's, um, which I'm not upset by at all. But, yeah, this one is just, it's, it, there are not, that I know of, a whole lot of country tunes about prostitution. Correct. Uh, because country music tends to be more about family values and, and you know, uh, it's much Less more, much more conservative. Well, well, yes, that's true. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, you Who can't. Who gets the family Bible? <laughs> <laughs> you can, I'm sorry, that was, that was funny. Uh, so, um but yeah, you cannot do a prostitution mixtape and not include one of the great female characters of country music, Fancy. So Great. There good, you go. Good pick. Good pick. All right. Well, I'm, I apologize in ahead of time because I know you're not a not a Who fan, eh. but I had to include some Who. This one was actually on my short list. Was it really? It was. I, right. didn't, I, I mixed it, but yeah, it was on my short list. I went with Trick of the Light from 1978's Who Are You? It is the second single from The Who's Are You, uh, penned by bassist John Entwistle, 
who, um, for my money, is one of the greatest bassists of all of rock and roll. Definitely top five, maybe maybe top three. Who knows? Maybe number one if I really thought about it. Trick of the Light focuses on a young man's sexual insecurity. This is why I like this. There's a lot of nuance to this song, really. It focuses on a young man's sexual insecurity surrounding an interaction with a prostitute. The young man, though, is looking for an emotional connection. But the woman sees the affair as nothing more than a business transaction, uh, dehumanizing him completely. He wants the woman to have enjoyed the experience physically and emotionally, and he's afraid that he has missed the mark. Uh, Any perceived show of emotion being nothing more but a trick of the light. Musically, the heavy tone of the song is brought about by Ant Whistle's distorted eight-string bass. Yes, I said that correctly. Eight-string bass, right? A five-string bass is, you know... Some bassists use it, but but eight strings. I I didn't even know that existed. It was too harsh for a radio play at the time, so the single did not chart. And despite Roger Daltrey's dislike of the song, the band performed it uh, quite um, occasionally, not not a lot, but occasionally. I, I I like the way that the song flips the script a bit, right, with the man looking for the authentic connection beyond the physical. Um, usually you don't hear that. Usually it's right. stereotypically the women um, that are looking for that connection. It also hits on the pressure for men to be hyper-masculine with the ability to attract and please a woman tied directly to his worth as a person. So again, in 1978, they're exploring issues that, you know, even today sometimes aren't talked about. A lot more now, right? Men being vulnerable, um, men being able to... Um, show empathy and discussions of toxic masculinity and all of that. But I think it is interesting, you know, the expectations for sex that we put on the different sexes, right? And the male's role and how a young man can be insecure about that role. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the song, I, it proved portentous uh, given uh, End Whistle's death years later, mm-hmm. too. Um, he died at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in, in Nevada, uh, Paradise, Nevada, on, in June of 2002, one day before the scheduled first show of the Who's 2002 U.S. tour. Mm-hmm. He was 57 years old, and Whistle had gone to bed that night with Alcyon Rouse, who was a local sex worker and groupie, who awoke the next morning to find End Whistle cold and unresponsive. Um Talk about life imitating art. Right. You know? the, the, the Clark County Medical Examiner determined that his death was due to a heart attack induced by an undetermined amount of cocaine while overexerting himself in bed. Here we go. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 kind of the foreshadow there is kind of. So, the, the, the pick, it was a good pick. Yeah. Uh, for two reasons. I also like this song, too, because it, again, this is not my theory. I'm sure I've read this, but just, just from listening. I think the Who, like the Kinks, are really should get more credit for influencing the punk revolution. Now, this is 1978, so punk is already a thing at this point. Um, but you can just really hear that in this music. And again, I don't think it's the Who wasn't trying to imitate the punk music being made. Uh, if you listen to late 60s Who, you can just hear it there. You can hear it there in a very beginning stages of, of what punk music would sound like with the distorted guitars oh yeah the, the three chord um, you know three chord riffs and so forth yeah now for the record I don't hate the, <laughs> I don't hate the who I just I know it, you don't have an emotional connection to them uh, yeah, none I get none that whatsoever. I have a lot of artists like that where yeah. I feel the same way um, I mean I like their early stuff better than the late stuff 
I, just because you know, I, I love that British invasion, that era of you know my generation and the mid um, their mid sixties stuff. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah like, um, but before they got again another band that got kind of progressive. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. In their later. Um, years. Yeah, I can listen to Magic Bus all day long, yeah. it, but it, but it's I I don't know. I respect Tommy, but I've I, I love the I love the guitar riff on Pinball Wizard, but. Other than that, Tommy doesn't do mm. a whole lot. I, I, I've just never been a, you know, yeah, no it's personal right. connection. Right. So, but no, this was a song that even I had on my radar initially, and I let it go, but it's a great addition to the mixtape. Um, all right, my number 11. Uh, this is this is kind of a reverse for you, because you've told me before that you don't really have a connection uh, to his music, but I love him. Bob Seger. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I respect him. I see why people like him. Not a fan. Yeah. So we're flipping here. Because here we I go. Yep. Love, love uh, Bob Seger. I'm going with the track uh, The Fire Down Below, which is from the 1976 album Night Moves. Titled The Fire Down Below, the song points out that the customers come from many different backgrounds and are from all over the world. The, quote, fire down below is the desire they're all trying to satisfy ah, okay. with the ladies of the night. Um, Seeger isn't an artist who you'd expect to write a song about prostitutes, really. Uh, he's known for being rather shy and, um, you know, he's, he's definitely an introvert off stage. Um but while many of his songs read like his journals, in others he takes the role of observer. And Fire Down Below is one of those where he's not pouring his heart out, he's just having some fun. Um, Seeger explained that he would not release a song like this on its own, but in the context of the album, it's offset by Night Moves, which was personal and, and poignant, uh, revealing his, his true self. He said not everyone saw or not, he didn't say, sorry. Not everyone saw the fire down below in the big picture. Um, the advice columnist Ann Landers criticized it in one of her newspaper columns for glorifying sex. And it wouldn't be the last time because Seeger dealt with um, Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Center for the sexual content of the song in another, uh, and for, actually for two this of the song? songs. This, yeah, this one and the horizontal bop, both. Oh. Yeah, um, yeah. This this one. We think in the eighties there were a lot, 
more controversial acts that you could go after if True. you were Tipper Gore. True, yeah. Oh, well. I, Tipper Gore, I think, was looking for everyone and anyone she could kind of, you know, lasso in as being a culprit in her in her mission. But uh, this wasn't released as a single. It still became one of Singer's, Seeger's most popular songs and a favorite on AOR formatted stations. It goes over really well live, and it, it still shows up on his set list. Um, Seeger recorded this with his Silver Bullet Band, which had become a formidable live group. Uh, their live Bullet album, released earlier in 76, set the stage for Night Moves, which made Seeger a star. And Singer, I keep trying to say Singer, uh, <laughs> Seeger, though, did not use the band on every recording because he liked to record in Alabama with the Muscle Shoals rhythm section as well. On Night Moves, five tracks were recorded with the Silver Bullet Band. Four were done with the Swampers at, at Muscle Shoals. So, um, yeah, same thing as the the Who. I, I, I love Bob Seger. He is... Bob Seger is, I think, he's, he's, he's the blue-collar rocker, you know? I mean, Mellencamp it does it and Springsteen does it, but Seeger kind of... Seeger doesn't have Mellencamp's folksy attitude and he doesn't have Springsteen's politics politics yeah. yeah he's he's somewhere in between you know who just a guy who you know sees the world around him and realizes that you know life is is about making memories but otherwise it pretty much sucks you know which I think is something that so much of middle America can relate to so all right my last pick I went with When the Sun Goes Down by Arctic Monkeys. It's mm. my most recent, so I, for these two episodes, 1956 to 2006. Um, from the record, Whatever People Say I Am, That's What I'm Not. I said, who's that girl there? I wonder what went wrong so that she had to roam the streets. She doesn't do major credit cards, I doubt she does receipts. It's all not quite legitimate. And what a scummy man Just give him half a chance I bet he'll rob you if he can Can see it in his eyes, yeah That he's got a driving ban Amongst some other offences And I've seen him with girls of the night And he told Roxanne to put on her red light They're all infected but he'll be alright Cos he's a scumbag, don't you know Said he's a scumbag, don't you know? This catchy number by English band Arctic Monkeys was the second single off their debut record. The protagonist observes a scantily clad prostitute walking the streets near a scummy man who is most likely her pimp. She eventually propositions the narrator and he turns her down. The song ends as the man picks up the woman in his car and she is saved from the cold temperature of the night. First of all, I love the guitar riff on this one. It makes me want to drive really, really fast. I also like the way the narrator is essentially an independent observer of what goes on around him. He feels sorry for the girl who has been forced into this lifestyle and wanting nothing to do with this world when given a chance. But to bring my list kind of full circle, the song even name checks 
Roxanne. Yep. And her red light. Bring us back to my very, very first pick last week, The Police and Roxanne. And I haven't really listened to a lot of Arctic Monkeys. You know, I knew a few songs like this and a few others, but, um, you know, listening to this, it's one of those bands I just kind of didn't take time to learn because my kids were young at the time and I wasn't listening to a lot of any music. I think I need to go back and listen to more in their catalog. Yeah. Um, I've always liked what I've heard, yeah. but I haven't heard a lot. So, but I really enjoyed this one when you uh, included it, you know, in. in Sent it to me. Yeah, um, and it's nice to have something newer. Um, you know, we we went way back fifty six. Yeah, so. might as well go a little bit into. Yeah, might as well come into today. Future. Yep. All right. Well, my last pick uh, to end it all. Depending on who you ask, uh, this next song is either about a prostitute or a stripper. But either way, the title character is a sex worker and one who refers to herself as a private dancer. Mm. Uh, Tina Turner, Private Dancer from 1984. It hit number seven on the Hot 100. Well, the men come in these places And the men are all the same You don't look at their faces And you don't ask their names You don't think of them as human You don't think of them as Keep your mind on the money Keeping your eyes on the wall And your private dancer A dancer for money Do what you want me to do I'm your private dancer A dancer for money And any old music will do The song is, is atmospheric like so many others that we've used. It would have you know, fit perfectly with a lot of the songs from uh, Side A. Turner sings in real time while working, describing how empty she feels inside. It, it's, it was an unlikely track, uh, and definitely an unlikely title track to Turner's wildly successful it's my favorite track, comeback Turner. album. It's my favorite one. Yeah, mine too. Um, but the subject matter, you know, it didn't relate to her life or her return to fame because some of the songs that she recorded did um this one um well well for one thing she didn't write this one uh tina wrote some of the songs in the 70s when she performed with her husband ike notably nutbush city limits uh which described life where she grew up in tennessee but after leaving ike and going solo she recorded songs written by others based on their hit potential or inspirational qualities um she used other media to tell her own remarkable story her autobiography her autobiography rather I, Tina, was a bestseller, and the movie based on her life, What's Love Got to Do It, that was a huge hit at the box office. Um, in a nutshell, Tina's marriage to, to I quickly turned abusive, uh, but it was years before she could find strength to leave him. To get the divorce settled, she ceded to Ike's demands, walking away with just her name. Um, she was 42 when she started her comeback in an industry that prizes youth, especially among female performers. Again, it was the 80s. You could get away with that Exactly. Stuff. So through hard work, talent, and determination, she overcame the odds, landing a number one album with Private Dancer at age 44. Now, do you know who did write this song? Mm-mm. Mark Knopfler. Really? Well, no wonder it's my yep. favorite Tina Turner track. Mark Knopfler wrote this song for his band Dire Straits, but realized hmm. that it did not work with a guy singing it. So he pitched it to Turner, who was beginning her comeback. 
In an interview uh, with her fan club, Tina Turner described her reaction when Knopfler played her the song. Mark said, this song is not for a man, it's a girl song. He recorded it, but won't use it. So when he put the demo on, he sang, I'm a private dancer, dancer for money, do what you want me to do. And I told him, I think you're right, it's not a song for a guy. But I liked it a lot. I wasn't sure whether the girl was a hooker or a very classical private dancer, but I thought, I'm going to take it. Um... Turner didn't realize that uh, until after the song was released that it was perceived as being about a prostitute. Early in her career, she did private shows, uh, the musical kind, (laughs) in in Texas. So she saw the private dancer as someone who performs very innocently at these events. She says, I can be naive about some of these things. Um, I took it because it was an unusual song. I'd never sung a song like it. Now, members of Dire Straits played on the track including their bass player, John Ilsley, and drummer, uh, Terry Williams, Jeff Beck played the guitar solo, hmm. as uh, Mark Knopfler did not perform on it. And Turner chose this song as the title track from the album after the photo was taken for the cover. In that shot, she sits in a chair wearing a classy uh, dress while a black cat stands in front of her staring into the camera. She felt the photo suited the private dancer character better, and it's also a more compact title than What's Love Got to Do With It. So, but yeah, it was it was actually a Dire Straits tune. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> I like it. I mean, I, I respect Tina Turner, but this is the one song that always yeah. stood out to me. Well, and you know, there there are shadows of your latest trick here. Oh, yeah. If you listen to the two songs together, you can, it, it's pretty evident. So Written about the same time. Yep. Yeah. 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 Very good. All right. That is 24 tracks. We need to come up with an order. We do. All right, we will be right back after this. And we are back, everybody, uh, with our sequence. Uh, this one was this one was fun to create. Uh, it's side A. Side A is very moody and very dark. Um, it begins with "Love for Sale" by Ella Fitzgerald. Normally, we start with a really fast, yeah. Kind of, but this this is a nice way to kind of ease into it. Yeah, we are beginning with Love for Sale. And now, suddenly, you know what just popped into my head? Hmm. You remember that scene in National Lampoon's Vacation after he was speeding? Oh, yeah. Uh, with, <laughs> yeah. With, Chris, with Christy Brinkley. And, singing yeah, and his, um, yeah, uh, his, his wife scolds him and he slows down and he starts saying, Love for Sale. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I don't know why it just popped in my head. All right, so here we go. Here is the sequence. Love for Sale by Ella Fitzgerald goes into Roberta by Billy Joel. Followed by Sweet Cream Ladies, Forward March by The Box Tops. Ticket to Ride by The Beatles. Dark Eyes by Bob Dylan. Sweet Painted Lady by Elton John. Your Latest Trick by Dire Straits. Private Dancer by Tina Turner. When the Sun Goes Down by Arctic Monkeys. Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis by Tom Waits. Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed and Mama by Genesis. Now, you want to talk imagery, and just, uh, that is... Yeah. <laughs> that side A is pretty pretty phenomenal. Side B, we turn up the tempo a bit. We begin with 53rd and 3rd by The Ramones. That leads into He's a Whore by Cheap Trick, followed by Trick of the Light by The Who, then Charlotte the Harlot by Iron Maiden, Roxanne by The Police. That leads into Lady Marmalade by LaBelle, Still not sure I like that segue, but it's the best that we can do. (laughs) Uh, Followed by Ex-Offender by Blondie. That goes into Runaway by Bon Jovi. Bad Girls by Donna Summer. Into Night Shift by Quarterflash. 
That is followed by Fancy by Reba McIntyre. And we end our mixtape with The Fire Down Below by Bob Seger. See, we were able to do it. We did, and I really like how this yeah. flows. Yeah. Um, it, this this is not like any other mixtape we've ever made. And, of course, thematically, I know. Sure. But just the sound of it. This is not how we normally try to position, yeah, yeah. you know, and then play with tempo. Um, but, man, that side A, that side A gives me chills. It's, <laughs> it's, it is it is pretty fantastic. So we did good. We did it. Now, for next episode, we've, we're still kind of cooking it a little bit. Yeah. Um, we can tell you our theme, perhaps. I mean, we, we already know. It's our, well, it's our Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's our Valentine's Day episode. And, and we're, we're attempting something. Yeah. Um, we are going to uh, play with an idea, and, and therefore it's, it's going to remain a, a, kind of a, a, a hushed uh, secret for the, for the moment. But um, if it doesn't work, you'll never know. Well, you will, because we just told you. <laughs> <laughs> but if it doesn't work, we already have our theme ready. Um, but, yeah, we're going to do something, something that we all did. If you are Gen X and you made uh, mixtapes, you did this, guaranteed, or at least most, I think, people who created mixtapes tried to do oh, yeah. it. Um, so we'll see how it goes. As, as well as many Broadway producers. Oh, we'll say oh that. yes, absolutely. All right. Well, um, sponsor time? Oh, Jay Callahan Painting. Uh, you can find her on Facebook. Look her up. Tell her that Alan and Dave sent you. Uh, please, uh, if you have if you like what we do and you're still not giving us a review, uh, we can appreciate the help. Um Definitely, if you want to go to especially Apple Podcasts and leave a review for us, if you like what you yeah, hear, we, we've been we, we've been stuck on a plateau. We haven't had a uh, review in a while on Apple iTunes. So, if you are a listener, a newer listener, and haven't reviewed us yet, we truly appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's all for this time. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits in two weeks. But for now, press pause, lift that needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out, if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time
Of time. 